0: So in the in the course of the last few weeks we've had we've had hate we have floods we have all manner of what the uh, buddha called dukkha uh, things that are hard to bear and our you could say that our typical reaction to things that are hard to bear oh well, it's it's not necessarily reaction we don't necessarily respond to things, we tend to react to things. So our, our habitual way of meeting difficult experiences is we go into some kind of reaction. And it, mm-hmm. it, we may not appreciate that it, that it is a, a sequential process of experiencing something that we register with our senses as something unpleasant. That's our first hit. It's unpleasant. And unpleasant, when it's not met with a, with a sense of mindful attention, it quickly, you could say, devolves or, or evolves into uh, dislike. And dislike, if it goes unnoticed, tends to spread out into, uh, into hating, into judging, into contentiousness, into resistance, into fear, into an elaboration on the simple reaction of dislike to unpleasant experience, and then it it culminates in a uh, in an effusion of of fantasy. In the case of things that we feel aversive to, it it culminates in the proliferation of of making a case for the prosecution against whoever it is that we're, or whatever it is that we are reacting aversively toward. Do any of you ever have that kind of experience in relationship to the unpleasant? So this is sometimes, and I'm doing it in a very general way, this is sometimes called the, the chain of... Causality, or sometimes called the chain of dependent origination. Dis, uh, dislike depends on unpleasant. Um, aversion, ill-will, all the forms of ill-will depend on not, not liking. That profusion of, of thinking about in an aversive way depends on flows out of uh, those reactive states in our mind. So there's, it's a, in some way, it's a very innocent process of how we go to, we could be in a, a, a moment where not much is happening. And even it happens here at Mission Dharma. There we could be, you could say, empty, open, easeful, and something triggers an... Uh, An unpleasant feeling and the unpleasant feeling is conditioned by past associations with that kind of feeling and before you know it our mind has just gone off on on whatever thing that is it could be the noise outside it could be could be somebody coming into the room loudly or late and Before you know it, you have what we sometimes describe in insight meditation. We call it the Vipassana Vendetta, where there's somebody who you almost begin to think that they're the cause of your suffering. When really all that happened was your own internal reaction proliferated into a a kind of fire, the fire of ill will. So we don't always catch things at the moment of unpleasantness, but that's one of the reasons we, we study the what's called the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feeling, not mindfulness of emotions. That's more a part of the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of mind and its mind objects. But mindfulness of feeling is the, is the experience if we are in the neighborhood of... Presence of mind. It is the valence; it's the tone that accompanies every single experience of our lives. Some experiences are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neither pleasant or unpleasant. And with the pleasant, we tend to react with liking, and then it goes on to fantasy. And and you know, when it comes to another person, sometimes it goes on to uh, liking, and then wanting, and then The the proliferation of dating, mating, you know, nothing happened, but your mind just goes into a a whole torrent of of fantasy. We call that the Vipassana romance when it comes on, especially when it comes in this context or on retreats, because we can just see for ourselves in a moment just a simple reaction to pleasant. Sorry to say, Puneet, I think we have to drop the sound just a little bit. Thank you. So we're not always lucky enough to catch this moment of, of just the feeling tone that's an accompanying any moment. But at any point that we, that we enter into, that our attention enters into an experience, and we, we meet it with the knowledge or the clear comprehension that there's something happening here that there's an unpleasant feeling. At that moment, the chain that usually sends you off into imagined worlds and places, it, that chain gets cut and you're left with the experience of unpleasantness, hopefully. Or you're left with the experience of pleasantness. And or you're left with the experience of it's neither pleasant or unpleasant because when we when the neither pleasant or unpleasant goes unnoticed we just generally space out or we start in we we end up thinking about our favorite preoccupation which is as you can imagine it's it is the imagined you you are your favorite preoccupation and that imagined view, of course, once we enter into, the, that's called the chain of delusion, once we enter into the version of ourselves that plays in our mind, we're, we're, in, a, we're in virtual reality. We're, we're in the realm of, of what uh, some would call fake news. But once we're in that little world, we replace uh, this real reality of, you know, this alive reality, with the, with the virtual version. And we sometimes wander a long time confused, mistaking that little story that's playing through our mind for the reality. So that's partly where we go when things are neither pleasant or unpleasant. We just kind of disappear into, into our imagined world. So the fact is, in these times, difficult times, where it's really easy to find experiences people situations that are extremely unpleasant it is um, it is our conditioning to to um, kind of compulsively or very quickly enter into the world of intense ill will so many of us have have been feeling. I, I know I had many moments in the last few weeks of of just very intense ill will and I came across a a passage from Martin Luther King that that actually saved my heart a little bit. There was just something very beautiful about it and and kind of brought me to my senses. So I wanted to share it with you and it was about hatred because it's been in the atmosphere and then we'll We'll talk about the floods, and I just was—believe it or not—I was in the hurricane, in the edge of the hurricane. I was, I was leading a retreat in Austin, Texas, over the weekend, and it's quite a dramatic experience. Even though, of course, nothing to the extent that people in Houston are experiencing, but it still very kind of dramatic and slightly frightening and slightly exciting, and lots of different things. So, but it, so the the Texas thing is kind of close to my heart right now, but you know, I, I can't help but when when all of, of those kinds of events enter my consciousness, it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg of storms that are striking people's individual lives and collective lives. This is a worldwide event that's happening all the time. Some form of dukkha, some, something that's difficult to bear. So we, we want to find a way of not letting the inevitable unpleasantness uh, the ignition of the flame that leads that to a a fire of ill will or reactivity or contentiousness or resistance to to life as it actually is So, so that we can respond so that we can meet our experience without compounding our suffering Suffering is, or pain is inevitable. The suffering about it is to some degree optional. And that is what our practice is all about. Learning to to meet experiences, meet what's happening with um, with presence, which, which is really the combination of wisdom and goodwill and embodiment, being able to stay in our seat, to sit in the middle of it all, to connect with life right where it connects with us, and do that with a sense of understanding. The Understanding, you know, in the simplest sense of whether I like it or not, things are the way they are. So at least I come to some state of balance with things. And even my own reactivity, if I meet it with wisdom and a sense of embodiment, even my reactivity is interrupted enough to know this is reactivity, this is aversion, this is ill will, this is hatred. And the whole of our practice, you could say, is learning how to make that shift from being just carried along by those fires of of ill will or fantasy to be able to start to notice or relate to them instead of relating from them relating to them oh this is what it feels like to hate or to have ill will that attention and wisdom of seeing things as they are it interrupts and it calms it helps our hearts open up to open up, first of all, to ourselves, and ultimately, it helps our hearts open up to situations and to to other beings. So here's Martin Luther King, who clearly was an embodiment of goodwill and equanimity and, and embodiment. This is from a 1957 sermon preached when he was still minister of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. He addressed the silent and not-so-silent toll hatred hatred takes upon us. There's another reason why you should love your enemies, and that is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated or the individuals hated or the groups hated. But it is even more tragic, it is even more ruinous and injurious to the individual who hates. You just begin hating somebody and you will begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. You can't walk straight when you hate. You can't stand upright, your vision is distorted. There's nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. He comes to the point that he becomes a pathological case. For the person who hates, you can stand up and see a person, and that person can be beautiful, and you will call them ugly. For the person who hates, the beautiful becomes ugly, the ugly becomes beautiful. For the person who hates, the good becomes bad, the bad becomes good. For the person who hates, the true becomes false, and the false becomes true. That's what hate does. You can't see right. The symbol of objectivity is lost. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. So I was thinking about that earlier, just kind of taken by just the clarity of it, and the simplicity of it, and the, in some ways the obviousness of it, and relating it back to our, our practice. And it seems that the, that the capacity that each of us has is often, um, is often wasted. And I came across a teaching from the Buddha that just inspired me because it, it's so it reminds me of a different orientation to to life than we usually think of as what's really helpful for us to find that that seed of loving kindness, to dispel hatred, to not just the the Cultivation of metta, which I talked about last week, the cultivation of love and kindness, the, the the ultimate fruit of our practice, love. But really, how to orient one's life, how to relate to this life, and it's a challenge for most of us because we are mostly we are mostly really swept up in what we call uh, worldly life in our in our relationships, in our jobs, in our busyness. In fact, I think that is our number one identity as a culture is uh, when somebody asks you how you're doing, you say busy. And you say it with pride. I'm cool because I'm busy. I often share from that editorial from Amy Krauss Rosenthal. She says, says, you name the question, busy is the answer. She says, I know we're, terrib- do- we're terribly busy doing terribly important thing, but it's just our knee-jerk response. So our life is organized around busy. Well, she contrasts it with the cavemen. She says, that we're, she says, were cavemen this busy? She says, what was it like for them? I've got ten caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? No. So it's, we're kind of crazy. And I don't think people were like that in the time of the... Time in times that moved a little bit more slowly. So, coming across a, a teaching of the Buddha to Anuruddha, who was a disciple and some kind of vision came to Anuruddha of the Buddha coming to visit him and then he put it to practice and he was, in um, his mind, really relaxed and opened. And he was told that there are eight thoughts of a, of a great person. Eight thoughts of a great person. The first thought is a great person, uh, a, a, a Dharma person, a person who loves the Dharma is one with few wishes instead of countless wishes, many wishes. In other words, many desires, just few desires. And the for the the great person, the who loves the Dharma, their thoughts are of contentedness, not on discontent. So it's something about the value of contentedness. The third thought of a great person, the value, the love of seclusion, not so obsessed with company, with stimulation, with being with people. Nothing wrong with being with people, that there has to grow in someone's heart a, a love of seclusion. A value of being energetic and not indolent. Or, or um, we use it kind of pejoratively in this country, this language, uh, lazy. But I like indolent a little better. Someone who loves continuity of mindfulness, vigilant mindfulness, where it really becomes a central value. This is a a value of a a great person. So not valuing unmindfulness. Now we don't, how many times, I don't know, I can't get into any of your hearts and minds, but do you think in the morning when you wake up, I'm going to bring continuity of mindfulness to my life? everything. To have it be a value that is that is the hub around which I live my day. Loving kindness and and mindfulness. Thoughts of having a concentrated mind, a well composed, a unified consciousness which is in some ways one element of it is to have our our mind settled in our body. To experience a sense of one-pointedness, to just be right here, to touch into the point of life where we touch everything, to have that as a value, concentration, a love of wisdom, not ignorance, of course. Finally. A love for the for the, um, the he uses the word in this translation, the unworldly, but it really is, is to touch that that transcendent element of your nature that's always already here. But we're so caught up in, in our worldly activities, in worldly situations that we that we lose touch with or we don't recognize that in us which is deathless, unconditioned, sometimes called unworldly. So it's moving in the direction of contentment, of few wishes, of seclusion, of concentration, of realization, of wisdom, and keeping these thoughts in our mind. These are the thoughts of a great person. So one of the elements that allows us to to grow in this sense, in this value, this, uh, value system of wanting to be free, wanting our hearts open, wanting ourselves to feel embodied so that we can meet this world with caring and wisdom is to develop the powers of mind. For for example, when you practice here, you know, you may have come here, when I come here I sit together and there's certainly this support of practicing together with others. My attention comes together with my body and I begin to feel what's actually happening here. And the more I feel what's happening here, there's a settling, there's a calming. So you may not appreciate that when you're attending to your present experience, you're not somewhere else. You're right here in this room, and why we use the body is because it's always here, at least as long as we're alive. That is the anchor for our attention. If you have attention in your body, there is a calming that just happens, almost an instantaneous beginning of a process of stilling, just by having your attention in the same location as your body. Now, if you keep doing that and you stay with it, you just keep staying, when I say stay with it, it, means you just keep putting the puppy back on the paper. You just keep placing the mind in your body no matter how many times it drifts into the imagined past, the imagined future, the imagined story of you, you just at the the grace the grace moments where you wake up again, you place your attention back in your body. You keep doing that for a while, and you those moments of calm begin to increase a little. And once they increase, our nervous system starts to become regulated. Now you may not appreciate that. Each, thing, each time you have moved your attention back to your body and sustained that for a little while, as long as it lasts. It may seem like the most simple thing could be, you may think of it, oh this is, that's just Dharma 101. The first, first recommendation of the Buddha. Mind directed to the body. Put your body in your mind, put your mind in your body over and over again. Okay, I've heard that before, but you may not realize that you are exercising the aspects of your own mind nature, your own nature, that if they are made strong they make possible the full, the full realization of the nature of the heart, they make possible being able to develop everything you need to be resilient, to be responsive, caring, to be to have a sense of presence when things are difficult. This is what this is all about, being able to sit in the middle of it all. So how does that work? You're using five basic aspects of your mind in every moment that you bring attention back to the simple fact of what you're experiencing. You're using what sometimes called aiming or gathering and that's, uh, there's a Pali word for it. So this is a, it's called vitaka. Those of you who know these, this language, it's called vitaka. And if you sustain that attention, it's called vichara. And vichara is this quality of not being superficial. You're not just kind of glancing at what's going on. You're actually staying here. And that's part of the intention you're connecting and you're sustaining and if you keep doing that you start to experience some kind of what we call sukha or contentment or happiness a, a sense of delight and an intense interest and an intense energetic an energetic sense of presence so much so you feel what that's called pity, rapture. You feel it so much so that your mind is less likely to want to be somewhere else. We often experience that together on a, we experience a little rapture together on Tuesday night. Just by, by having us all focused on, you may even experience it focused on the words, or focused on being together, focused on those moments where we're where everything about a tuesday night is a reminder at least for this time don't look back and don't look ahead stay here there's something about the immediacy of it all that starts to awaken that feeling an intrinsic unconditional feeling it's part of us of rapture of of awe of aliveness you realize Wow, if I'm, when I'm really here in a st- sustained way, it's pretty wild. It's pretty unexplainable. It's, it's alive. It's so different from past and future, which are, which are kind of deadening they're, because they're mental. It's really alive here. Do you have that sense or is it just me? <laughs> so this is a, a quality that starts to come into our mind of rapture so we've got the sense of gathering and sustaining these are mental qualities that we use and comfort and contentment and rapture and that last quality that we start to experience of one-pointedness where our mind for as it everything coalesces into greater calm mind just doesn't move so much anymore it's like we don't even have to make effort after a certain point we just our mind isn't going ahead and it's not going back it's just here And I sometimes sense that we all it all happens together. We all do that together on a Tuesday night because we have strength in numbers. A little harder at home sometimes, we're a little more scattered. Our to-do list is much more insistent on our mind, or you know, all the different things of our life that that lead us to distraction. So that that's part of the value of practicing together so that we can at least get a taste and something to refer to in our daily life something to compel us to keep practicing because it can easily devolve in our own daily practice but of course you s- still wanna it's essential that we have ongoing daily practice but uh, being together sangha is really an, a tremendous enhancement to the to the power of, of, um, the cultivation of our practice so these five what are called concentration factors when they coalesce we feel more settled in our body and it makes possible that sense of of uh, of presence of resilience and how does it how does it affect our wisdom we can see more clearly when we're present we can see that there that life is only a moment at a time we see the difference between the proliferations that our mind usually comes up with the stories of ourselves and the immediate experience. The one, the, the line I always use is we see, we see the difference, like James J. Audubon, he says, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. We experience ourselves as we are. As we are, not as we imagine ourselves to be. Is the version that's playing in our mind is one of usually of a conflict that needs to be solved. The one we experience in real time, no evidence, no evidence for one person here that, that you should be different than the way you are, that there's something wrong with you, or you're as unworthy or unlovable or not enough or any of those, those conflicts that are part of our Self story. So we start to experience a quiescence of that and see that in the moment, there's just what's happening. There's the Buddha, the wakefulness that lives in you, knowing the Dharma, Buddha Dharma, you know, the jewels. It's so immediate, it's so self evident, self revelatory. And the process is, you know, that. If, once you taste this, as Kala Rinpoche says, you, you'll never be the same person again. You just start to have a different view of reality. And the more you stay in it, more you're, you see that it's permeated with, with love. And love combined with embodiment, combined with the wisdom to know that, you're, that there's just this and things are as they are, whether you like it or not, Brings that sense of resilience, brings that quality that comes through the power of concentration, it brings the quality of equanimity, a balance, mountain-like or spacious like the sky, lucid like a flame. All the different metaphors used for, for in touch with, the, with that in us that doesn't move, that can sit in the middle of it all. So all that happens by just our willingness to aim in this direction, maybe not have as many desires, not have as much discontent, not move toward feeding our discontent, aiming toward wisdom, aiming toward concentration, aiming toward continuity of mindfulness, and just stay here, stay here, stay here, stay here, stay here, stay here. Don't stray away. So it's very interesting over the weekend, even though it wasn't in the, at the eye of the, you know, in the central part of the storm. It was, it, it was part of the circle, you know, that big circle that you probably saw on TV. And the outer band was Austin. When I was there, there was, now it's more than 24 inches of rain there. And, you know, more than 50 inches in, in Houston. But in the whole time, it was intense winds and rain. It just went on and on and on and on. But we sat. We sat in the middle of it. And part of what inspired me to talk about this tonight is we just sat right in the middle of it. And even though half the people were too freaked out to come to the retreat, it was there were, you know, it was nice, it was a nice retreat, and but we sat in it. And even though there was this intense storm and we knew there were so many people who were in in really dire straits, we We found a a joy in the middle of it. And at the same time, this heartbreaking care for those who are in harm's way. And those two can exist simultaneously. Sometimes we don't think that we can feel a, a sense of deliciousness and delight when other people are suffering. But if we wait to feel that sense of home, that sense of resilience, that sense of balance, that sense of strength, if we postpone that, then it, it actually it makes us less, less able to cope with things, more likely to move from the unpleasantness into, into mostly thinking about it, instead of sitting in the middle of it with balance. So I guess this is a... a for me, it's a, I'm, as I am always talking to myself anyway, it's a call to, to stay where I am, to stay, to keep keep coming back, as they say in the 12 steps, and to listen to the words of Ajahn Chah, because the culmination is, is all, the culmination is this beautiful, both heart mind quality of of equanimity this impartial openness this impartial love this ability to 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 be well have a well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances we cannot wait for things to be the way we want them that just leaves us in a perpetual state of tension and suspended happiness so we have to f- we have to find it now or, or now or never, you could say. So here's what Ajahn Chah says, just to create that image of uh, the storm and the sitting in the middle of it. He says, go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows, and see who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptation and endless stories. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this, wisdom and understanding will come. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe. And the mental states that visit are like visitors who come and stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake. The visitors will eventually fade away and continue to come back again. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here, and you will know every one of them well then your mind will be at peace. And just to give a double hit, I haven't read this in quite a while. It's time for it to resurface. The poem entitled The Little Duck from Donald Babcock from the New Yorker magazine, October 4th, 1947. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the shore. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic. And he's part of it. He looks a bit like a mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree. But he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate, as if it were infinity, which it is. This is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. So let's all, for the last few minutes, ease ourselves into the boundless just where it touches us. May all beings develop wisdom concentration resilience and a boundless heart boundless heart of compassion may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all and may everyone in the flood zones their family their friends all the worried beings in this world be enveloped in our loving kindness May all beings live with ease. May all beings, regardless of their circumstances, find that sacred happiness that is without sorrow, right in the middle of it, right where it touches them. Thank you. May we all have the hearts of Martin Luther King. Thank you. Hope to see you next time and